All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon all of them. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it in the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone he, as he had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. as well and keep your, your trigger fin- fingers ready with those because there'll be a little bit of flicking around I'm sorry about that but it, just, to keep, just to keep you on your toes I've just looked up for the first time um, I, I, which I say because I, I was just remembering the last time I preached there were six people in the congregation and, uh, and I think I was one of those I think <laughs> so, uh, so this is it's great. it's great to be here what's wrong with living for me that's our question. And, um, and I found this question really hard to answer. It, initially, when I was asked to preach on what's wrong with living for me, um, I thought, that's great, that's easy. I, actually, I hadn't taken the job yet, so I was saying yes to everything. Um, but uh, I thought, that's easy. It, there's loads I can say on that. Of course, it's wrong to be living for me, and I do believe it is. Of course, I believe it is. And my hope is... Um, that at the very least you'll understand some of why I believe that, uh, and at best uh, it'll be something that you believe already, and you'll be encouraged and reminded why, why you believe it. Or, or if you're genuinely wanting an answer to that question, um, that as we listen to God's word, uh, we'll understand why, uh, as, as human beings, as those created by God, that there's something better uh, to be simply living for ourselves than to be simply living for ourselves, looking out for number one. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons uh, that I found this such a hard question to answer. Everywhere we look, uh, we're told to look out for number one, and we hear it a lot um, in in our workplaces, on the telly. Uh, Our experiences tell us that as well, don't they? Mine do. Um, And so this idea of living for myself, living for me, um, it kind of... it gets, it's, how, it's how the world works. It's what the world thinks is right. Um, it's the right thing to do. That's what, we, that's what we're bombarded with, uh, whether, it's so, whether it's so plain or not. Um, everyone else is doing it. It's, it's only sensible to keep up and uh, follow suit, otherwise we'll be left behind, trampled all over, um, and be that at work as we, as we seek after promotion. So as I strive to become vicar and oust Andrew... Uh, that's what I'm doing, uh, or, or in your own workplace, or at school. Um, uh, if I don't give someone the credit they're due for a project we've worked on together, or on the sports field, if I don't, if I see that someone's a bit better than me at sport, and I, I play, I play down their their sporting prowess to ensure that I stay on the team. Uh, what's wrong with living for me? Everyone else is doing it. I just want to make sure that I keep up. Um, and that's just, that's one. Uh, of the questions or issues that underlie this, um, this bigger question of what's wrong with living for me. And there, there are others that relate to our, our lifestyle choices, the things that we think will make us happy. Um, so we might say, I want to be in charge of my own life. Why would I want to follow anyone else? Um, isn't that just being a sheep? 
anyway, or I'm not hurting anyone by my actions, uh, or, or if I'm just enjoying myself, what's wrong with that? It's my money, or it's my time, or it's my body. Uh, what's wrong with living for me? So uh, I, that was partly why I found this a difficult question, because on the first hand, it's commonplace for people to be asking it in some way, whether or not it's the exact words they use, it's all around us, but, but also because it's ingrained in us to ask it. Um, it's ingrained in me to ask it. It's, it's built into who I am uh, as an imperfect person. So if we think about, um, and this is our first flicking, it's an easy one, it's Genesis. Uh, if we think about the account in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent and eat the fruit from the tree they're not supposed to. And I'm just going to read Genesis 3, 2 to 4, which you can look up, or not. It's just a short, a short passage, so I'll read it out. Genesis 3, 2 to 4. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. That was two to six. Apologies. and, and, and I sometimes wonder, why do we think that that's so terrible? What did they do that was so wrong? They ate some fruit. Um, and actually, they desired wisdom. They wanted to know good from evil. That's what the account tells us. And, uh, you know, wisdom and knowing good from evil, surely those are good things to seek after, and I think they are. Um, but the problem was with, with them uh, that they didn't just want to know good from evil. They wanted to decide good from evil. They wanted to uh, decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong to oust God from his position of authority and decide for themselves what they could and couldn't do and should and shouldn't do. Um, and, and we're told as well that we've inherited, in Romans 5, we're told that we've inherited that desire ourselves. Um, and in the, in the Psalms we read that we were sinful at birth. So we, we have that in us as well. What's wrong with living for me? Um, and so I think, if we're honest, it's a question that we struggle against asking as opposed to something that doesn't ever enter our heads. I know it, maybe that's just me, but it's something that I, if I'm, if I'm honest and think about it, it's, it's much easier for me to say what's wrong with living for me than, than, uh, than to do the alternative. Um, and so I want to think firstly about something we, that we've just touched on, and that's this assumption that living for me is what will bring me most joy. Living for me will make me uh, the happiest I can be and make me the happiest and the most fulfilled I can be. And that underlies this question completely. And we want to be happy, don't we, Christian or otherwise? We're looking for joy, joyfulness, happiness, fulfillment. Um, And the assumption is that living for myself, uh, doing what I want to do, is what brings me that happiness. Excuse me. And that's uh, the point of our first reading we had in 2 Samuel. So do, if you've left your finger in that, do flick it back up. Um, we read this, this story. Nathan comes to David, the king, um, and he tells him this simple story, simple and short story. Uh, let me just read the story a little bit of it again. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. 
The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. And, uh, and David's up in arms about the injustice, injustice of this all, isn't he? And, and that's our reaction as well, I guess, as we hear that story and we've, and we've read on further so we know uh, what Nathan goes on to say. But it, this would be our reaction too if we were hearing this for the first time. Um, what a terrible, selfish thing of this rich man to do. And, and Nathan is very quick to tell David off and to tell him that he is the rich man in the story. Um, and he is the rich man because of what we read in the previous chapter. And I want to give you just a brief summary of that. And I'm sure a lot of us know this story uh, in chapter 11. I love how it starts. Uh, I'm not going to read it all, but just how it starts. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. I, that's all I'm going to read. I like that. It just seems ridiculous. You've got all these kings sitting around in the springtime now, gents. Off to war. I just think that's funny. Um, and David, he's the king. He, it, springtime arrives. Um, and he thinks, it's time for war, I better be off to war. Uh, so he gathers his army and sends them off to war. Uh, he stays at home. Hasn't quite, got, quite worked out that the king goes to war. He stays at home, sends his army off to war. Um, and in fact, he could have saved himself a lot of trouble by going off to war, I think, because he stays behind. The men have all gone, and David's eyes wander. He spies a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing... Uh, from where I don't know and it's carelessness really I think but he thinks to himself I must have her and, and he's, think, he's only thinking about himself and, and Bathsheba but he's thinking about himself and he thinks what I want to have is that woman I must have that woman that's what will make me happy um, and he knows that this is someone else's wife and he thinks that regardless of that I must have her what's wrong with living for me and he throws his kingly wait around and Bathsheba is brought to him and one thing leads to another and he sleeps with her and David thinks great I got what I wanted it's good living for me until a few days later Bathsheba comes back and says to him look David I'm pregnant and then the story descends and David descends in a a downward spiral of scheming and plotting and trying to cover up his tracks for this thing that he's done wrong And so he brings her husband, Uriah, home from the front line with the pretense of asking how the war's going. So Uriah comes home and David asks him how the war goes. But actually, the real reason he's brought him home um, is to get him to sleep with his wife. So in nine months' time, when she has a baby, uh, Uriah thinks it's his. But um, Uriah's far too loyal, and his men are all on the front line, and he's loyal to his king as well. And he he doesn't go home. He comes back to see David, but he doesn't go home. He camps with all the servants uh, at the king's door. He camps out, and um, he, he's too loyal uh, to this. And, and, then, and then things get worse, and he said, David comes up with an even more outrageous plan, um, and it, which is to send Uriah back to the front line, to, where there's, to the point where there's the most fighting, um, and then have everyone else in the army retreat and leave him there to die on his own, which he does, and Uriah is killed 
and David breathes a big sigh of relief. And it's shocking, isn't it, that story, how uh, David's selfishness, how his wanting to look out for number one, descends into this downward spiral of deceit uh, and adultery and drunkenness, which is in there as well, and and, uh, ultimately murder. What's wrong with living for me? And all this happened thousands of years ago, but it's pertinent today, I think, as well, isn't it? We live in a generation that says, I want this, or I want that, or I must have that right now, whether that's success or wealth uh, or sex, as in David's case, or going out and getting drunk. Uh, Society says what's wrong with doing what I want to do. And we see in this case, don't we, and in the case of the drama with the prodigal son, who goes out and lives for himself, and essentially tells his dad that actually he'd rather he was dead uh, by saying, give me, all, give, me, give me my money now. Uh, we see that kind of selfish, living for me attitude just doesn't work. It all ends in tears. Um, and even as Nathan tells David this story about these, this rich man and this, and this poor man and the sheep, David's outraged at himself. As he, uh, before he sees himself in the story, he's outraged at this injustice. Um, but then he's told it's himself and he recognises his sinfulness uh, as he sees himself in, in Nathan's story as he, as he looks on from the outside. But he was so blind to it as he continued to try and cover over his initial selfish act with worse and worse consequences. And, and I think this maybe it's the same with us sometimes. Maybe it's easy to see others wanting to live for themselves and be quick to judge, but not so obvious to ourselves in our own lives. And I'm sure that's the case with me. For starters. Okay, fair enough. So if, if this is the case, that um, living for me is not necessarily the best option, and even, dare I say it, not what's going to bring me the most joy, then we must ask, secondly, what's the alternative? What will bring us fulfilment and real joy? And I want to suggest that we can be really encouraged if we're asked this question as Christians, um, what, what's wrong with living for me, if that's something that comes back to us? Uh, And that's because of what the alternative is. I've got a very good friend called James. James is my staple non-Christian friend. He comes into most of my my talks as a non-Christian. But he's a a good guy, non-Christian guy, and he comes along with me to church on occasion. And I found myself sat there next to him in the the pew or the the seat, depending on how modern we are, Um, and thinking, quite often found myself thinking... What is there that we are listening to that he wouldn't agree with me on? Um, and that can't be right, can it at all, I don't think. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't happen here, of course. But, um, but it's because the gospel, the message that Jesus brings and the message about Jesus demands some kind of reaction. It's not moralistic, as, some, as, as these talks that I, sometimes I've listened to with James are. It's not about making us do the right thing for the right thing's sake. Um, Rather, it highlights to us, doesn't it, that we can't do the right thing. We need someone to intervene, someone to stand in our place, someone to cover over our sins in the presence of a holy God. Because the reaction might be, on the one hand, yes, I believe that, and I'm going to follow Christ. Or on the other hand, no, that doesn't sound quite right to me. Um, maybe I find it even a bit offensive. What's wrong with living for me? 
So if my friend James doesn't ask this question, he hasn't been challenged with the gospel. And so what hope has he of believing in it ever and in Jesus as his saviour? There's a long way to go from there, obviously, but it's a starting point. And who knows, with a bit of gentle encouragement and uh, explaining and a whole lot of prayer, who knows where that question will end up. He's been challenged with the gospel. And that's what this question assumes. There's some kind of assumed knowledge behind the question, isn't there? That says, I know to be a Christian means living for someone else, for Christ, and in turn for others as well. And that's what we read uh, in Mark 12. Let's flick there. Mark 12, 28 to 31. Mark 12:28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. To love God and to love our neighbour, Jesus tells us, are the most important commandments. Because to do that is to seek after obedience to God. And now we're getting to the heart of uh, what's really wrong with living just for myself. Why it doesn't work. It's just not what we're designed for. And it goes back again to the Garden of Eden. We saw Adam and Eve and and ourselves wanting to be in the place of God, wanting to decide right and wrong for ourselves. Uh, And that's just not what God created us for. Don't look this up. Uh, I'll read it to you. We read in 1 Corinthians 9. uh, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And in Revelation, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being and so there's this question isn't there and and, uh, this question what is the chief end of man and I'm sure a lot of you know uh, the answer that that we're told in the the Westminster Catechism we're not going to get into that but the chief end of man we're told is, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever and that's what the Bible says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which is the complete other end of the scale from living for myself, from living for oneself. That's what we were created for, and that's where we find our fulfilment. So ultimately, by saying, what's wrong with living for me, and then going and doing just that, we're, we're actually denying ourselves, here and now, the joy we should have in glorifying God But not only that, we're denying ourselves into eternity for the sake of fleeting earthly pleasures. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And we read of Moses in uh, Hebrews. Uh, We read these words of Moses. That he chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ 
as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. And that's the attitude we should take as well, isn't it? What's wrong with living for me here and now, uh, pandering to my worldly wants and desires, is that it's not lasting. It's ultimately not satisfying our deepest needs. It doesn't fulfill what we're made to do, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And forever really means forever. And as Christians, we live in the light of eternity, don't we? We don't live in the past and with the weight of sin on our shoulders. We live in the light of what Jesus has done and what he's won for us on the cross. Forgiveness and free access to God. And an eternity spent with him, glorifying him and enjoying him. And that's the point of the drama again, isn't it? We wanted, uh, the, the, the son wanted to live for himself, and so he did. And we are all uh, like that in some respect, until we find Christ, until we turn to our Father in heaven and say, I've messed up, I'm sorry, can you ever forgive me? And he does, he does just that. And so just to close, we remind ourselves of this um, picture of the early church sharing all their possessions. No one needs for anything in Acts. Uh, a great example of living for Christ as they testify uh, as to his resurrection and living for each other as they, as they share everything together. And I'll just read uh, that picture again of the early church in Acts. If I can find it. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it in the apostles feet, at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed, distributed to anyone as he had need. Amen.